Hello, hello, we are back um, and today we have a guest. Our first ever interview. First ever interview, which we're very excited about. Um, so, Alicia, I'll let you introduce yourself. Who are you um, <laughs> and what do you do? Big question and I don't never know where to start. I think I'll start obviously with my personal life. So I am a mum of three little kitties um, who are growing way too fast uh, and I would say that that has probably been the biggest shift in who I am also professionally because uh, it gave me a bit of an opportunity to pause and recalibrate a little bit and nice. yes. change my priorities. So yeah. uh, me as a professional, I'm an advanced sports dietitian and accredited dietitian uh, and uh, I graduated in 08 in, at Newcastle Uni actually. So I didn't set out to be a sports dietitian. I always knew it was like kind of an interest of mine. Um, but in 2012, I had the opportunity to go to the Australian Institute of Sport uh, in a fellowship position. Uh, and ended up there for three years. So uh, that well and truly defined where my career was going, but also where my passion was. Uh, but then I, when I fell pregnant in 2015 to have our first bub, I was in Canberra. My parents were in Taree. That was a seven-hour drive. And so uh, we made the really hard decision to leave and move closer to family. We just knew family was where our heart was at and it was a really important thing for us. Um but it meant that we actually ended up living in Foster. So I went from Alicia the triathlete into Foster, which is a really small coastal town for those who aren't aware. And, you know, it gets to like that six months down the track. And I was like, oh, I really want to get back into my career. Who am I as a career person? Where's my profession going? And it was like, okay, well, I could work in aged care here. I could rent out a room. And uh, that was when Dan, my hubby, was just like, oh my God, all these options just feel so broken compared to where you would just start. Yeah, because yeah, so you're at the pointy end of elite yeah. sport to yeah. become a generalist dietitian in a yeah. So you had just moved to the home of Ironman in Australia. I did, but it wasn't anymore though. It, that had better have gone to Port Macquarie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. Didn't even have that. Didn't even have that. And so um, it was, was then that we actually started just tail just tiptoeing around online nutrition. That was 2017. So before COVID and we were very much, I would say quite heavily judged and um, questioned. I don't think it's possible to um, service without being in a room with someone physically. Um, oh, wow. You know, it was a really challenging thing, but I was like, no, when we're looking at behavior change, I really do feel like we can be present and impactful without having to have that one-on-one -on -one consultation structure. Um, so we started to play around with technology in 2017 so that by the time 2020 came, um, <laughs> it was really kind of in the vibe of where we wanted to be and where we wanted to impact. So, yeah, we've been uh, in the tech startup land since 2017, 2018 now. Um, we've heard of Zoom well before the rest yeah. of the <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and we um had started building our app by then as well and on that continuous service um model and we'd also um partnered with football australia at that point in 2019 that was um as a part of our contract and way of servicing i guess um that was very different to the norm so it's been a really challenging what is it now six years or so um where... a lot of the infrastructure around that being easy was didn't exist then so if now if you want to build a course they want to build an app there's a million products out there that can make that easy for you but back yeah. then it doesn't seem like that long ago but 
on a technology front, it really was. Mm. It was. And it was really uh, financially vulnerable for us because yeah. um, within a couple of years, Dan decided to come across into compete as well, my husband. And that was probably the most vulnerable, scary moment of our lives to just sit on the bed together and just go, oh my God, like all our income now. It's yeah. a tech startup, <laughs> volatile tech startup where it's just a complete roller coaster. And, um, yeah. And I think that's where semi where we would have met because I remember mm. meeting you at a yeah. mindful eating skills training that Fiona Sutherland was doing at Newcasts in Newcastle. Yes. I'd organised for her to come up and do that, and you were just like even some of the new information or semi new information then that you were like, I want to incorporate this, but I'm all in. Yeah, <laughs> already. Yeah, like it was like it's really hard to change what I've already built. Yeah, so I guess that um, I'm really curious as to. Like how has that shift happened? So, you know, often when I, I'm doing new supervision with people, I sort of have this question of, you know, did you come out of uni, like fully formed, non-diet, understanding, weight stigma, weight bias? Um, and if not, how did that shift happen for you? So I guess that's my question is, so where, what's changed? Like where, what has been the shift for you? It's funny, in- I've always felt like a bit of a different dietitian um, a lot of the time. Um I went into dietetics almost accidentally as an person. Um, I had physio first, OT second, dietetics third. And I remember going to Newcastle Uni and my dad handed me this pamphlet and it was like the most cliche dietitian pamphlet you've ever seen of a woman in her office holding an apple. Like, (laughs) it was just like, and my dad hands it to me and he's like, you like food. Like, <laughs> yeah, right to learn about. And I was like, actually, I do like food. <laughs> really good point. So I went into dietetics with a very um, positive relationship with food and body. Mm. Um, and it didn't take me long to realize that that was actually very different to where a lot of dietitians were and why they were intrigued by nutrition and dietetics. It was often from their personal journeys. Um, and so I think I've always realized that I was a little, a little bit different in that regard and it took a lot of listening and a lot of learning though because I came out very prescriptive I came out very I will fix it (laughs) I am the expert and I'll get expertise into you and you will go and do it because I remember thinking probably similar story feeling pretty okay in myself and food and stuff and just thinking well if everyone just sort of did what I did honestly I came out and I was like white privileged female dietitian. Mm. like I really was like I look back and I'm like man I did so much assuming I did so much prescribing and it was all so well-intentioned but I just hadn't started listening yet and that was really when I started to realize um over time how much harm I was doing but also part of the reflection was I'm I love the science I love nutrition I love food like I've already said but what's the point of that if I actually can't transfer and translate that knowledge into someone's life and that's when I started to become completely obsessed with behavior change motivational interviewing all those types of coaching concepts where you could absolutely meet someone where they're at so it took a lot of years, a lot of listening and a lot of self-reflection to actually get there, though. So uncomfortable. <laughs> Honestly. And so people, that's been their path. And I think one of the things that we love about being able to, and it's 
drop in the ocean, but being able to get in front of some final year students for one hour or two hours or however long out there is, think there's an opportunity here that people won't go out and be 10 years down the track going, feeling ineffective or feeling like something wrong with them, rising and falling with their clients weights or with or with their c- compliance in lots of inverted commas mm-hmm. um before they go oh actually it's we don't under, like I'm not actually at what you say I'm not listening I'm not actually mm-hmm. understanding this person's perspective and so I'm just totally missing the mark with recommendations because it's just not where it needs to be yeah wow so how has that been in the sports dietitian world so um yeah, so I remember um, a conversation that we had um, once with, at a presentation at Newcastle Uni with a um, fantastic, like, very well-known, excellent Australian sports dietitian um, who had obviously just been at um, learning with, I think, Fiona Sutherland on body positivity when she was Body Positive Australia back then, um, body positivity in sport. And knowing Fiona, it's not about actually body positivity. It's about eating disorder of harm and risk and all that sort of stuff. And I remember this uh, dietitian saying that she's just really not sure it's going to work, um, that really at some point we just can't, um, I think being body positive was essentially what she was saying. And uh, what I didn't say and kicked myself as soon as I walked away and it popped into my mind is it's not about body positivity. It's not about um, any beauty standard. It's not, it's not even really in sports. I don't think it's even really about inherent weight bias and things like that. Um, so much as being about informed consent and risk management. Um, I don't know if I had actually said that, whether it would have just bounced <laughs> yeah. off or not, <laughs> but I'm really curious, what's been your experience sort of doing something different in that pointy end elite sports place? Yeah, my experience when I was at the pointy end at the Australian Institute of Sport, um, and, and mind you, this was 10 years ago now, and so the practices within this um, would have changed significantly, but our roles as dietitians was very intrinsically linked to body composition. So our roles were um, around monitoring body composition, whether that's skin folds, DEXA, those types of things, alongside nutrition, intervention, prescription, supplementation, those types of things. So it was quite structured in that way where we were still doing a whole lot of skill-based learning, which I adored, which was like cooking classes with, you know, 16-year-old male footballers. And it was just an okay. absolute blast. Like it was such a fun role. Um, but alongside that, there were skin folds and those types of things as part of our job. And um, I, I actually worked at the time with Nikki Jaycock in that role and she'd just been like in and out of maternity leave and she'd come into the room and I knew she knew something I didn't know. Like she'd always just come in with that eating disorder lens and that body image lens and, my God, she's just going <laughs> to me somewhere and she's talking another language a little bit. Um, uh, and, and you know how they just don't, like in the room, you just have all the, you know, prescriptive type of dietitians and um, body um, centered dietitians, which I was definitely one of them at those times, but you just had to keep tuning in and going, nah, there's, there's another conversation here that we're not having. And she definitely gets it. And I don't yet. And I just need to keep listening. Um, And so I feel very privileged to work alongside Nikki Jacob, who is now doing incredible things in the eating disorder in sports space. And I talk to her often, Um, but at the time I could just tell we were on different wavelengths. And so in sport at that time, I was doing a lot of compliance work in terms of, well, this is what they're doing. I do the same. I do what I'm asked. And like they're superiors, like I'm working alongside like the best in the business, right? I didn't necessarily have the confidence 
to question, but I also do. You've got the research papers out there, right? No, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Definitely like that hierarchy for sure. Yeah, it was definitely that. And, um, you know, there was times looking back now where I was so aware that I was making athletes uncomfortable. You know, you had athletes come in just absolutely dripping with sweat as they got their skin folds done. I'm like, oh, they're just hot. Like, so- <laughs> <laughs> but you look back and you're like, oh my god, the level I'm of so activated distress yeah, must yeah. have been feeling to have mm-hmm. that response, and you know, the yelling out of different um, numbers, and some of the boys, you know, putting in the numbers and having competitions in the hallway, and you know, all those things were just so normalized. Yes. That that's so really- toxic once you've got that end sort yeah. of plan. But there's always been like there's a sort of a story that runs parallel to you know you know diets don't work and diets are harmful, but only fad diets, right? Yeah. Not 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 anything prescribed by a dietitian. No, it's like fad diets. They don't work. No, 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 none of them. None. <laughs> Exactly. And it was just so, it was so interesting, right? Because also the conversations with coaches in all different sports that I was working at that time were also centered around, I need this player lighter. What are their skin folds doing? And the skin fold, like the access to skin folds and stuff, even just a decade ago was just so blatant. Like anyone can see it. Like now I'm so happy that there's so much more stringency and questioning of like, well, who actually does need to see body composition data and all that has shifted so much in that time. Um, but looking back now, I didn't ask questions around disordered eating relationship with food. Um, it was really like, okay, well, they need to lose weight and this is how we're going to do it. Not asking any background questions. And, you know, it took me a really long time (laughs) and I don't know when the moment happened. I actually think it was after I had kids, to be honest. And I don't think it was kids per se that created that change in my awareness, but it was definitely changing going the number the body composition that's a lag measure like it's just something that happens over time I'm way more interested in the why and as we started to move through the why and started to ask more questions around energy availability and that leads into more questions around disordered eating it became very clear that these don't happen in a vacuum change in body composition doesn't happen in a vacuum and if we focused on the why we're actually focusing on the root cause and that's just so much more powerful in terms of how we work with clients. And so yeah. it was more just me pulling a string pretty like really on my own at that point and making that realization that if I'm going to create behavior change, then we had to actually allow for the foundations of nutrition, not to be protein, carbs. <laughs> I don't, like, honestly, I used to be like, here's your foundations of nutrition and protein. That, that was me. Now I'm like, you know, foundations of nutrition are actually <laughs> around our relationship with food and body, our skills, our, you know, all those types of things that are actually the foundations of nutrition to be able to achieve the top level. And so, yeah, that's been a long journey, but a really, really nice one. And I had the opportunity um, just last year to actually rework with one of the athletes I work with at AIS and he was in the football space and I got to sit down with him and I actually got to apologize. Wow. I, yeah, I did. I did get to do, I like, I, I did do harm and mm. I did advocate and I wasn't aware. I didn't ask the right questions, you know, like there was so many things that with all good intent, I definitely didn't do what's best for him. And we had such a beautiful relationship even back at AIS, but, I could have done so much more to help him where he is now. And yeah, it was, it was nice to have that opportunity to reflect, yeah. but also have a whole lot of self-compassion in it as well. Yeah. Do you think, um, 
because it would have been, I think, probably easy and safe to stay put in that, to just sort of feel that discomfort and then run away from it. And I think a lot of people do that. And I wonder in the sports space, do you think they do it because... There's so much more, again, in verticals, like evidence in the numbers around like associations between perhaps a low BMI and ability to run marathons really fast. Mm. And so there's that belief that if I change the body down to that low BMI, then we'll get this, the ability. Um, I remember one little moment when I did my ISAC anthro mm-hmm. accreditation forever ago, um, the, one of the facilitators uh, early on said oh you know for our runners you know we will from really young be sort of plotting what their natural bmi um would be and if it's not going to be below a certain this just naturally they're not coming into our into our program and that was a one of the sort of first things for me of going okay like there's there so there's always some awareness that you can't I guess diet down you're not going to have the same um i guess ability endurance results performance whatever if you had to starve yourself down to a BMI that is associated with really good performance, but do people get stuck there because there is an initial sort of performance improvement sometimes for people who do change their body composition? Like how do you work in that messy oh, space? And that question. Very messy. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's why the question was messy. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's a really good question. And I'm really pleased to say that um, there'll be a systematic review actually published soon. I don't think it's published yet, but I've had the privilege of reading it. And it was done by all the top sports dietitians in Australia. And um, they actually looked at where we're currently at in research with body composition and its um, relationship with performance. Right. And how many papers do you think are published in all of sports that actually connect performance and body composition? Oh, I would assume heaps because it's in the everybody knows category. a lot. But I'm feeling like the answer might be 29. 29 papers. And yet it's like everybody knows, like every, Mm. because I, you know, I used to do some triathlons, not professionally Mm. at all, (laughs) Um, but even in that sort of, you know, weekend warrior, very amateur triathlon space, there's the, well, power to weight ratio. You've got to get your weight down to be able to go fast on the bike. Like it's just like an everybody knows. Um, If you're in energy deficit, you're not going to be able to have the power. (laughs) You're missing half the equation here, guys. Um, but it's just such a sort of a belief. Oh, that's fascinating. 29. Yeah. And at the end of the day, how much is correlation versus causation? Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, what really comes yeah. first? And how much is in your own belief? If I believe that I do better at a certain weight, well, I may well do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's not because and and of even in life. that 29, very few actually found a positive correlation between body fat and performance. It was mainly around muscle mass. So increase lean mass, power. And when people lose weight, they often lose a heap of lean mass. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm really excited for that paper to come through for the main reason I do feel it will change conversation or at least create curiosity to check in with assumptions. Um, And it's something that I work a lot with coaches on for the main reason that generationally through coaching and also all support services, is there is this assumption that an athlete looks a certain way. There's an yeah. assumption that a professional athlete that is going to have potential will look a certain way. And it's based not on only assumption, but actually belief systems. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of um, weight bias and weight stigma within that. And the more that I unpack it and the more 
that I ask these really vulnerable questions of coaches, the more curious they become of going, wow, I actually don't know where that's coming remember, from. remember how much I do it. Yeah. A friend of ours, Shelley Lask, who's a body positive personal trainer down in Victoria, telling us that she somebody reached out to her and they were, I think, I can't remember what the sport was, but they had recently medaled at something like quite elite, but they wanted to work with her so they could look fit, look like an athlete. It's like you hold the medal, you look, you yeah. look like an athlete. Yeah. There's no medals for the other. Yeah. No, yeah, that's yeah. a whole different competition. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that one I'm never going to touch. Thank you. <laughs> Let's not touch that today. We can get yeah. Taryn Bromkin in next time. it it is really fascinating and and I think that's really the challenge when I'm working with athletes is that you're almost breaking apart the social pressure of weight or what they should look like in Mm -hmm. terms of body image in what they're seeing in social media and presented to them as what beautiful looks like or Mm -hmm. what acceptable body shape is versus what their body becomes um as a part of their sport or position or training and that body acceptance is really conflicting and it can feel um there's a lot of dissonance within that right because you've got I want to be the best athlete but then at the other side I'm like feeling really uncomfortable with how my body's responding right now to that training or that level of training or what I'm feeling with and all those types of things so it it is really really tough and it, it changes so quickly depending on so many things and you know, we've got athletes in Matildas that they've never had this much video photography. Oh, my goodness. Just so much breakdown of not necessarily the conversations of all. Like I haven't seen any negative conversations in terms of body for the Matildas, which has been so nice. (laughs) Um, But it doesn't mean that they're not breaking themselves down or comparing. And they're also, um, I think, a really interesting piece in uh, sport is that they're living with each other a lot of the time literally and so they're comparing right the risk of comparison food (laughs) choice um at all times so if they're not in a really safe environment when it comes to body food body and food comments um it can be a really debilitating thing and so a lot of what we've done um in football australia is actually focus a lot on environment yeah, nice. Because I imagine there's also that, you know, because, again, those everyone believes mm-hmm. things. One of them is, you know, energy in, energy out. Um, there'd be the risk that if they're all doing really similar workload on the field, um, that they should all be eating the same thing. But of actually there's such individual variations to people's requirements and appetites, metabolism and all that oh. sort of stuff. Um, so actually really moving away from that the plate should look the same we never glory in young women's appetites like we do in young men's appetite yeah. oh come fill him up yeah. oh it's gonna cost me a fortune yeah, yeah. i get yeah. that all the time yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but with with young women we're like oh yeah oh, that's too much yeah well even as a kid i used, i'm so glad i never got a complex about this thinking back but i'm sure someone else would have but it was like oh alicia's hungry warm up the horse like it was ah. like a family like a family comment like my extended family would just appreciate how much i ate you had a big, yeah i have a t- totally yeah, yeah yeah at least it wasn't but it could very easily with the wrong yeah up. absolutely the other way didn't worry right. me, but... um be a problem um so that's not a comment around um particularly like a team sport, Mm. different requirements. Um, I remember seeing, uh, I'm a bit into F1, so you might not know that about me, but um, I remember watching, I don't know if it was on Drive to Survivor or some other stuff that I've watched. Um, There was one of the drivers was going shopping to buy dinner and he 
didn't know what to eat. And in the shop, he had to call his dietitian to ask her what he should buy, what he should cook, what he should eat, which I imagine is, mm-hmm. look, when you've got millions of dollars, you probably have a full-time dietitian, but not the case for most. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to get that job. That sounds, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, but my question is like, how do you, I guess, work with empowering the athletes you work with to feel confident in their own right. choices while also making sure that they've got, like I can imagine it has to be prescriptive sometimes as minimums of, you know, um, that you're getting all the vitamins, minerals, macros, whatever that you need. So how do you sort of navigate that space of not having too much dependence on the expert who's telling you what you should be eating, given that's sort of our culture and what they might believe you're supposed to be doing versus empowering them to trust their own bodies and have enough information to go with that, with the extra piece of, Sometimes like huge amounts of exercise makes you not feel very hungry. Yeah, sometimes you <laughs> actually do yeah. need to use your intuition because I know I need to, not because I want to. It's massive, isn't it? And, and um, with a lot of the athletes I work with, they're traveling a lot, so their environment is always shifting. And so even creating habits, if you like, or routine is just something so foreign to these athletes like it's not even possible so the only option is resilience and we talk about food resilience in a really positive sense and we define it as the speed and the strength you can make the best decision in that moment and you get better over time and so we bring that resilience concept into our um, junior and young Matildas very early and then move it through and we give lots of opportunities to kind of have panic little moments of going you know what there is no perfection there's just what is the best thing in this moment that you can choose from um we have cooking classes for example where we'll have like scenarios of like okay we haven't actually planned out this session but you are going to find something to cook from your pantry and we'll just create stuff from yeah. making do is that's right i became a dietitian um by chance, because I didn't know what I wanted to do. OT was on my list as well. And then the day that the UAC preferences were due, I got so sick of it um, having to choose. I just didn't know that I threw the UAC guide across the um, room and I picked up the newspaper and I was really into Sydney Swans at the time. And it was a profile of their sports dietitian who was getting to cook with them and shop with them. And I also had like a big crush on a particular wallaby at the time. Um, and so I was like, this is it what i want to do so when you said that that bit was really fun i was like oh that's what i wanted to do yeah. <laughs> happen um for all sorts of very good reasons um but yeah so i'm just so interested in that space of mm. with them doing the cooking but also in helping them feel like they yeah right like to be able to do it absolutely yeah and and I think a really big piece to this it'd be um completely remiss of me not to mention um we've got a team chef in the Matilda's environment in particular um and he is he makes my job so easy I mean I love that job oh yeah it's very cool so I think I I adore him and working with him for the main reason that he appreciates food that it isn't a prescription. It isn't perfection. It isn't about the nutrients. It's actually about how the girls sit down and they chat. It's how they might be homesick at the time. We bring that to them with food. It's how, you know, they might not be hungry after a match, but we know they need to recover. So what's the comfort foods that we can bring to them that they're going to be more likely to enjoy, even though it's 1am in the morning and they're feeling hungry. You know, they're possibly lost. So, you know, there's just so many things where they might not be feeling hungry Um, for so many reasons and so you know performance food doesn't look perfect 
and oh, I, I really love that because he brings that creativity to him. So yeah. Oh, that's cool. Oh, oh very cool. cool. Yeah. So do you think that the culture is changing more broadly? Because I feel like on one hand, from listening to you, it's almost changing at the pointy end, mm. but down on grassroots with all the beliefs and the this is what has to happen and the stuff we've seen coming out of Swimming Australia, even even like what's can, your what's I, your hope? What's your I was gonna say, can we call you a change maker? I think oh, you are uh, like <laughs> I, I hope so not for me. I hope so for sport and, and also just you know, I'm this just is thinking um just the work you did with the Matildas and um even just like your recent, well, it was actually not that recent now, but your social media post about like changing um, approach to um, skin faults and things like that. Mm. And it went off. <laughs> I'm still shocked by that, actually. It, it was really, I'm, it gave me a lot of hope because I <laughs> actually thought that this post could either do absolutely nothing, like people could absolutely not be interested in this at all and I'm just making yeah. something up. Yep out of nothing like I was just like but it's a story I really want to share so I shared it and it didn't have any expectation to it didn't have any you know if it it didn't go well it wasn't going to change what I did as a practitioner what you're doing is the right call but I did say if it did go well it could cause a lot of vitriol like I was like this could go really badly you might hate the other option in my mind it could go really well yeah they're they're hooked on these beliefs around this is vital yeah Um, absolutely and their identity is in in touch with it often as a practitioner right like my worth as a practitioner is that I do body composition like that is you know often how we actually sell ourselves in our practice and so it gave me a lot of hope because it was astoundingly positively received Mm -hmm. um, more than I could ever have imagined and I'm sure that behind the scenes there was also maybe some negative comments, but I didn't get to see any. So it was very nice. No one put them on my post. Thank you, everyone, because <laughs> Alicia's part doesn't work well with negative comment. Um, but timely yeah. as well with that, you know, that big complaint and court case um, out of that uni in the States where the coach and the dietitian in particular have been um, called out for genuinely doing harm uh, and one of the comments from the dietitian which was just sort of shocking is well I work in an elite sport environment I don't work in any sort of clinic <laughs> I just went, work with people I'm afraid you do yeah. <laughs> exactly. and the people who are able to push through pain with those to hyper focus and to you know say no to fun and pleasurable alternatives and I should say for the listeners that, that haven't seen this post because I'm sure there's so many people who haven't seen oh, it we'll it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was basically just saying that um uh for two and a half years Matilda's ha- I don't know the girl's weights or body composition measures um unless it's absolutely necessary and it really comes down to a few different reasons that we made that decision it wasn't done on a whim or out yeah. of fear I think some of the stuff coming out of the US, sometimes what they're doing is just going, oh, well, let's just stop body composition. Yes. yes. But it's actually not done with purpose. We actually had to create <laughs> different ways of measuring progress in yeah. nutrition to be able to. Yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't reactive. Your yeah. the way it was. Yeah, it was it was very informed and it did take a lot of time um to make that decision, but also to make that decision with the team. It wasn't a me decision, it was an us decision um and there's various reasons for that based around validity of measures reliability of measures they weren't being utilized but they're also that piece of sometimes impacting performance to the negative um, or distracting from performance so there was lots of different things that came about 
um, in that decision. Um, I think the most intriguing one was that we never actually revisited. Yeah. We never missed it. <laughs> so it was a really Amazing. interesting thing. Yeah. Um, and I think the most beautiful piece was when we started to remove those numbers, my role as the dietitian actually changed in the identity of what the players saw me as and they no longer came to me wanting to lose weight they no longer came to me wanting to drop um body fat percentages or whatever it may be they came to me because they were feeling a certain way or they'd noticed something or they were looking to achieve something in performance it was much more purposeful and I think that was probably the biggest win personally as a practitioner of going wow I can do my job actually way better yeah um, distracted by and the players are actually way more aware and curious about their bodies and performance without those numbers distracting them or yeah. um, making them think they're not, you know, interpreting their body and how that feels yeah. accurately. So, yeah, it's been interesting. So get lost in the number result and miss that actually I'm getting worse at these things that I'm supposed to be getting better at. Spot on. Yeah, absolutely. Or feel like it's not worth it. I remember um, listening to a podcast recently and that's not an athlete, um, but the guy talking about how he sort of lost weight to achieve a particular outcome, like lowering cholesterol. Um, and he lost weight actually by in like by starting a whole lot of really, you know, quite sustainable and great behaviors, adding vegetables, doing more movement, blah, blah, blah. Um, cholesterol didn't go down. So he wondered whether you should keep doing the stuff. Yes. Not because of weight, not because of cholesterol, but because you because he said, but I kept doing it because I'm feeling better and I've got more energy yeah. and I'm sleeping better. I'm like, yeah, all those things. If they were centered in the first place, there wouldn't even be a question of, well, maybe I won't bother um doing this. So two questions. One is what's the best thing you ate this week, which we'll do last because we forgot to ask you at the beginning. Um, but my other question <laughs> was so good at this. Um <laughs> My other question is, I guess, what's your sort of hope for, what do you see, yeah, what's your hope for the future with the athletes you work with, with coaches, with dietetics? Like what are you hopeful um, and, and what would you like things to look like? Let me ask, let me answer that one first. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I think for dietetics, we can't actually, well, in, in sports in particular where uh, I am a lot, but I think wider this is still very applicable I really don't feel we're in the best place to change or innovate because we still haven't nailed safety in our roles Mm -hmm. and empowerment in our roles. I really like if you're looking at what innovation needs, it needs those two things. And so I feel like we need to, first of all, get to a point of role security and feeling valued to be then able to be more impactful, more positive in all areas and be able to actually drive ourselves all forward. Um, Yeah, I I think that's probably my number one of why we started competing in the first place. It wasn't just for the athlete. It wasn't just for the individual. It was actually for the profession as well. You know, I I was a new mom. I was like, okay, well, if I'm finding this whole system really broken, you know, mm-hmm. there's probably a whole lot of other dietitians that are also finding it extremely broken as well. Um, and so we always had kind of two visions in mind when we started Compete. And um, part of that was actually the dietitian community and elevating them, um, not just um, servicing. And they work beautifully together. Which <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I actually would love to see um, that in our community uh, because I just don't think we can innovate and do new things until we nail that. And what we probably haven't got to, so before we get to what you eat, best thing you've eaten this week, um, 
So you're doing some cool stuff in that space for dietitians. So can you tell us a little bit about your sort of Compete Academy um, and what you're sort of doing to not just hope for that for the future, but to be part of it happening? Yeah, the Academy is a really intriguing piece that became part of our business. Um, It was never like a, this is going to be part of the business. It was just never really planned. But as we grew on the performance side of all the servicing and whatnot, and as we started to try and hire, like, oh, we actually can't hire because they don't, um, we almost had to de-dietitian before we then had them working with our clients. And that was, um, and I don't say that in a really negative way. I say that in a, I understand because that was me way. Yeah, totally. But it takes um, a long time. And you can't yeah, just, absolutely. It takes a long time. And um, so we're getting lots of science through and lots of passion around prescribing and knowledge and all those types of things. But the um, ability to translate that into how they worked with clients was missing. And so as we appreciated that that was actually a risk to our business, we started to think about how we might be able to make more of like a bit of a wheel where we had our performance side, but on the other arm, we had the academy side that was able to feed into working with us at Compete Performance. And so the academy became not an attempt to become um, a replacement to Sports Dietitians Australia or Dietitians Australia. We didn't want to be an accreditation arm. We wanted to be um, more around that support um, community, but alongside that support, the, um, the practitioner to become more confident in behavior change meeting the client where they're at and implementing the science, but in a way that actually um, was relevant in a client's life. So, yeah. So cool. Fantastic. Yeah. So what's the best thing you ate this week? It's going to be boring. And I promised you I'd eat something exciting, so it wasn't boring. <laughs> it doesn't okay. have to be but exciting. Time, no, do you know what? It won't no, be exciting. Like sometimes it's boring. Yeah. No, it won't be exciting. <laughs> I've actually discovered one of my favourite um meals at the moment is like a crispy Vietnamese um, pork mince and the kids all love it too and so my favorite meal this week would have to be that because it's like a build your own dinner at our table and I really adore just watching my kids create their own like rice mince salad kind of muddle but it's all different yeah it's just fun it's messy um but it's just yeah, it probably is one of my favorite things is just dinner. Yeah, oh, is that an online recipe? Can you share the recipe with us and we can? Oh, I will actually. Yes, yes, I will. It's um, there is a recipe team eats version of that. Yeah, in the that book. is what it is. It is actually. Oh, recipe. oh is it? Yeah. Yeah. Too. We're oh, talking yeah, about it. I'm going to add brown sugar to my mints and it's going to work. <laughs> So oh, good. So good. It's yeah. really yummy. Oh, well, no, I, I seriously, on recipe tin eats, I still haven't had a recipe that hasn't worked. I know. Same. I've cooked almost the entire book. So I set myself a challenge. I was in a massive cooking rut at the end of last yeah. year with the move and just everything. Um, mm-hmm. And so I set myself the challenge to cook the entire book by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. I'm almost done. I've got like 10 things to do. Um, and apart from the mussels, which is more me, I don't like mussels. Yeah. Um, there's just not been one dish that I haven't been like, that worked. That's delicious. I'm going to make yeah, that yeah. again. So. Very clever. It's probably my favorite recipe site. For yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. So was it $25 in K? Oh, I know. Bargain. So, thank you so much um, for coming and chatting with us. I feel like we could talk all day, but totally. we should let you get on with your day. I feel like I've been so scattered in our conversation. Anyway, that's me. That's how we roll. So people who listen to us will be like so used to that. It's all right. We've had people say, I heard you talking, you were talking about eggplant. And I said, me too. And then I realised I was talking to a podcast. Oh! <laughs> so fine. We're fine with that. Um, so 
I mean, we'll put all the links as well, but, you know, is there anywhere that we haven't mentioned where people can find you? Where's the best place? Uh, I would say we're most active on Instagram, but lately I've been so busy with work, I haven't been very active on Instagram. (laughs) Uh, I will get back to it. Um, We've also got a podcast called Compete Waffle. We um, go in little chapters, so it hasn't had a new episode for a little while, but we'll do another um, chapter, if you like, uh, very soon. Um, We talk to lots of different athletes, individuals, experts, and then I do some waffles just on my own uh and yeah i'm active kind of just in social media land email's totally fine but also our website you can um, get in contact with us anytime from there too awesome well thank you again we have loved having you on um and we'll see you around sounds good thanks girls see you